A reading from Acts. Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on the throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Even if for now, for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, be more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indiscernible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory be to you. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Christ. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Please be seated. I'm not sure if you notice, but in the Gospel of John, Pentecost happens the first time the disciples see the resurrected Jesus. Did you notice this? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's 50 days later that the disciples are shut up in a room and they're scared, and then there's a sound like a rushing wind. We're going to do that in three weeks. In John, it's actually just some point immediately after the resurrection that Jesus shows up, and did you notice he blows on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit spirit which could also be breath he does this of course because um, the disciples and I think we're really talking about figurative speech here are absolutely winded they had had the breath knocked out of them by seeing their rabbi who they later come to understood as their Lord crucified They were there in the middle of the deepest wound of their religious life, barely able to breathe. And so Jesus does this amazing thing. It's the same thing, you know, that God does in Genesis chapter 1 after making the human being out of clay. It's just a statue. And then God breathes life into it. And so the disciples in that language of Genesis are recreated. They're given a new life, a new way of breathing. They're given a second wind. They're given in the middle of a slow road to death, a dramatic recovery. And this is what the gospel describes to us as having life and having it indeed this new life this new way of breathing and it's tremendous isn't it what a wonderful story except our patron saint wasn't there one thomas (laughs) thomas who has become um you know his reputation has become really a bit besmirched by this passage in recent years um notice though that at the time thomas is called the twin and i mentioned this this to you during Lent that there's a very old tradition that says Thomas is the twin 
of Jesus. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean the birth twin, but that the two were so close together in their wills that they were considered twins of one another is a distinct possibility dating back to the three, early 300s. So the twin says to the disciples, glad you had a religious experience. Glad you went and got baptized in the water. I wasn't there. Glad you went to the tent meeting. Maybe if I'd been, I'd have gone with you, but I wasn't. So until the thing happens to me, forget it. He's actually become the patron saint of the scientific method. I don't know if you know this. (laughs) And of course, the story goes that Jesus meets him in his doubt. Now, this is a really, really interesting story for us. And what's amazing, you're going to hear Christine describe this in a bit, until about four weeks ago, we didn't have a picture of our patron saint anywhere in the building, and of course now we do. And and there you see him, Thomas to the lower right, and Jesus in the upper left, and Christine will explain in a bit, but, but this is actually part of, the, part of where I'm headed. Um, you see Thomas is reaching out, touching what appears to be a rose, and that's meant to be the wound in the side of Christ. And Jesus' hands appear to be holding roses, and those are meant to be the wounds in his hands. And I think this incident really invites us to consider what's going on in the resurrected life, Period. It could be, and I think this is maybe the the traditional interpretation, it's not a bad one, that Thomas has so much wrapped up in Jesus that he just refuses to be fooled by anything other than the truth. What do I mean by that? There actually were a number of theories going around at the time of the resurrection about what had happened that wasn't resurrection. And you can read about these. They're quite interesting. One of them is called the swoon theory. And it says that Jesus was on the cross, and he really was, and then he just sort of uh, passed out. And they thought he was dead, so they took him down. You know, and his pulse was really low, and they didn't check it. And so he revived, and he was fine. So he didn't really die, and he's got the wounds, but he, but he didn't die, you see, so there's no resurrection. There's another one, and you can see this in a Monty Python movie called The Life of Brian, actually, that says that they got the wrong guy. So they, the disciples thought they'd crucified Jesus, but really they just crucified a Jesus lookalike. So when Jesus came back, it, well, he'd never died. There's another one that says Jesus was really just a ghost, ghost, spirit, figment of their imagination, so the disciples only saw what it is they wanted to see. But please notice that this gospel, this story, is getting rid of all of those. Jesus has a body. The resurrected Jesus can be touched, so he's not a ghost. He has wounds in his hands, but most importantly, he has a wound in his side, a wound that the Gospel of John says essentially pierced his heart sack. There's really no coming back from that. And beyond that, he has wounds, period. So they didn't get the wrong guy. This is Thomas wanting to verify, perhaps, that the resurrection is real. 
that it's not a figment, that it's not just a cute story. And there's something really amazing about this level, right? It makes me think people didn't make this up. <laughs> if I'd made this story up, Jesus would have come back and he wouldn't have had any wounds because I wish life worked that way. That we come back from tragedy and moments of death without wounds. But what happens actually, I think, is much more beyond our imagination than that. And I want to suggest that what Thomas does is really points to something greater than just did it happen. I think Thomas is pointing to what resurrection is really all about. I want you to consider that what Thomas wants to know is not just that the crucifixion and resurrection happened, that it was scientifically real. I think Thomas is asking us to contemplate the reality of the resurrected life that we're invited to live in today. And that reality is Thomas wants to put his finger in the mortal wounds of Jesus and he'll know resurrection is real if in those points of death he feels God's life all around them. I think Thomas is not interested in touching death. We've all already touched that. I think Thomas is interested in touching things that should take life away and finding God's new life all around them. That's kind of a weird thing to say. But I think, I hope, it takes you to a place of contemplation in which we start to think that God is not here to take our suffering away from us, but God is here to fill our suffering with God's presence. Put another way, God is not here to get rid of our wounds, but to beautify them, to fill them with larger life. And the truth is, this is the kind of experience that all of us will have at some point. And I think, I think there's a lot to be said for us growing into the vulnerability of being wounded people. When I was young, vulnerability was often equated with weakness, with invitation to be hurt. I don't think that's the resurrected life. I think that's the life of the fake Jesus. <laughs> I think that's the life in which our wounds just heals up. But, but consider with me, and I've not had this happen to me directly, but I've walked with a number of folks who have been married for 50 plus years and lost their spouse to death. What is that other than a wound? If I asked any one of those people, do you wish that wound were healed and closed up? The answer, of course, is no. Because if the wound were closed up, the loss of their loved one would be total. The reason there's a wound is because for 50 years, they spent their time entwining their spirits. And so now they have to figure out 
where theirs is when their partner is gone. But notice that even in the middle of that woundedness is exactly where the love of God is sometimes most revealed. And as a resurrected community, I wonder if this passage isn't inviting us to be vulnerable with each other and to say, yes, I see that you just lost your spouse. I lost mine five years ago. Put your hand here in my loss and see that God is all around it. I wonder if this passage isn't inviting us to say to people in our community who are in the middle of debilitating loss, me too. I know what it's like to lose a child. It is death. But reach out your hand and touch me at the point of loss of my child. And trust that you will fall, not forever, but that you will fall into God to go to those people who we work with and say, I know what it's like to have an eating disorder. Touch me in my side. I know what it's like to worry about the future for my children. Touch me in my heel. I know what it's like to have a loved one diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Put your hand in my wound. Put your hand in my wound. And trust that we fall into God. And I think really that's what the window invites us to. And last week we were really lucky to have with this John Newton uh, chief of staff and he, to the bishop's office, and he wrote this book called Falling into Grace, and you know, it's really, really quite interesting, that book. He talks about how often life pushes us. I'm not sure that we usually jump. Life pushes us in these wounded ways, pushes us. Mental health diagnoses, physical diagnoses, loss of someone that we love, that's a push and we find ourselves doing something very, very uncomfortable, both literally and physically, and mentally and spiritually, and that is falling. That is falling. John said something really interesting, which is that in the middle of our fall, God is always descending, descending so that we don't always rise spiritually to be with God. No, no, the point of this story is that God descended to be with us. God took on flesh, but I actually think we can go a little bit more wild than that. I'm not sure that God is descending like on a staircase with control and with poise. No, I think God dives. I think God dives to catch us, erratically dives in this way. It's a dive into the deepest points of woundedness and rejection and vulnerability and God has done it so that when we fall, we fall not just with God but we might fall into God. 
And I wonder if that isn't the difference between the resurrected life and frankly the regular life. Our trust. And I wonder if that isn't the whole language about doubt and belief. Belief cannot be a cognitive category. It cannot be. Because all the scientists in the room, and there are many, much smarter than I am, know that it takes exactly one counterexample to upend a rule. And it takes infinite, infinite examples to confirm a rule. That is the stuff of trust. Wonder if Jesus isn't telling Thomas and us as well. Stop doubting my presence in the middle of your suffering. Stop doubting my ability to be with you and to encircle even your moments of death with larger life. Trust me. Wonder if Jesus isn't inviting us in the pool of life to stop thrashing around so erratically and to lay back and float because God will hold us. And I am positive that if that's true, God is inviting us to take dives for other people. Uncontrolled surges of saying, reach out and touch my wound and trust as I have learned to do, that God's life can be all around these wounds. And that's why I think the dive language is so, so important because it takes us diving and saying, we all have cracks. It's how the light gets in. I think our invitation through Thomas Christine's going to say this much differently and better than I am, (laughs) is to be that kind of resurrected community. Not the kind that goes around and bleeds all over each other. Not the kind that's full with pity and self-pity and says, poor me, look what I've lost. No, the kind that says to those in the middle of tragedy, me too. Me too. Let me sit with you. Me too. My scar is not gone and it won't be. You can touch it. Me too. And I will die from a position of God's grace to give you the life I've found. Let's dive with Thomas into grace.